Hello, this is Joe Rubin for Vinegar Syndrome, and I'm sitting here in the midst of uh, Manhattan's West Village, I guess. Soho. Uh, Soho. <laughs> with uh, filmmaker Simon Nocturne to discuss Savage Dawn. Uh, and just looking at the opening credits here, uh, this was shot in Arizona? No, actually it was shot in the desert going north to uh, towards the north, the wine area from Los Angeles, and along the way, uh, Bill Milling discovered this. He was he got up very early and he found this lovely scene and the mountains and the and so we we took the camera uh, the next dawn and and shot it. You have a nice uh, magic hour of photography yeah, there. Yeah, that's uh, yes, our, our DP who was phenomenal at shooting Magic Hour. He shot a lot of very Magic Hour commercials, too, so he knew how to do that. And that was uh, Gerald File. Gerald File, yes, who did a beautiful job on this film. He really knew his stuff, and he knew California. He got us a great crew. Uh, we had worked union, of course. Not all our films are union. We're union in my, my beginning, but... Uh, we were full union, SAG, DGA, the whole works, and it, it really helped a lot to have uh, the full panoply of uh, experts and technicians to do it. So take me through the uh, origins of this film. Where did the concept come from? Well, I had come up with a film a long time ago where some punks took over a bus, and that was sort of genesis. And then talking to Bill, who's a scriptwriter, uh, he also was a producer in this film and acted in it as well. Uh, Bill uh, volunteered to write a story, uh, and we came up with a basic outline of a story of a Vietnam vet who returns to his small village. In that stage, we thought we were going to shoot it in New Jersey. This was before California came into it. And that came in because Gregory Earls, who was then the, pro the executive producer, uh, was convinced that we can get better talent, better sets uh, all around, and he could raise more money uh, for doing it. And so we shifted to California. And so the story developed in, in a desert town, which uh, Jerry File knew about. I mean, he knew of a, a ranch in Orange Valley, which was where they shot, I think, Friday the 13th. And there were a lot of standing sets there, but we, we built all our sets. Basically, we built the entire town and with some good carpenters who did it and uh, were able to, to come up with the storyline. And we got Karen Black and George Kennedy to be his old buddy from the Army, uh, the, our striker, who's our, who's our hero, uh, played by Lance Henriksen. And we invented a story of some bikers who took over the town and terrified the town and how he was going to come and single-handedly defeat them all. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the, the film that was sort of the thematic origin for this about taking over the bus. Uh, can you talk a bit about that film and what it was? That was a small 16-millimeter film we made, which in the early days of the B cinema uh, scene in New York, uh, drive-in movies were equivalent to what streaming is today and they would have normally on the weekends three movies they would have uh, the main feature a second feature and then that third movie that they would 
print very inexpensively, so people would stay and buy popcorn and make out in the cars, which were mostly young people. And, and I had a distributor then who came up with an idea who asked about me and my making a movie, and I came up with a storyline of a bus driving across country with a bunch of various people, older, younger, and three punks get on it soon after they leave the city as they're driving west and they take over and terrify the the bus and one kid in there decides that he's going to defeat them all and they become just a simple hero young hero without experience without any uh, arms or anything slowly outwits the, the there's a little love story that goes there with a young girl so um, this bus takes off and the driver is uh, blackmailed and forced to continue driving and they have all the stops that they have to make and all the stops they make and they're all terrified and they follow the orders of the three punks and this kid outwits them all and out of that came the story of, of uh, making this in a more modern way. This is about the war and vet and a bunch of bikers who take over this town. Um, what was the title of the bus film? I think it was, the last one was Bus Trip to Hell was the name of the film. I think okay. that there were many names that came with it, but that was the, the one that I think was the one it was released on. And I think it probably disappeared. It was a blow up from 16 to 35. It was shot in 16 with an array. Shot in reversal? Yes, it was shot in reversal by Bob Megginson. Okay. You know, what, what's uh, interesting about the concept for Savage Dawn is the whole biker theme was very popular in the mid-60s and early 70s, but there really weren't a lot of biker-themed movies being made in the 80s. Yes. So th this, in a way, has more of, you know, it feels very 80s in terms of how it looks, but the storyline is much more evocative of like a 60s film, like an American International type biker film. Yes, in fact, they weren't meant to be bikers, but it turned into bikers because of the events of casting, of coming up, and Bill came up with that because he thought uh, that in the desert that would be the kind of thing that you'll have bikers running around, and that's who would invade a town. Um, could have, at one point we thought it was going to be drug dealing, but that's also so overdone with drug yeah. lords coming around and this gives an opportunity to have a lot of action and, and chases and bikers who could come and, and totally terrorize a town so the idea was appealing and it was different at that stage the only other film of that era was Easy Rider which is not really that kind of a biker film but it had that allure and there was another film I can't remember the name of it but there was another film that also had, had a lot of biking done in it and I don't remember the film, but so that's the one we chose. And since uh, Lance knew how to ride a bike very well, there was a whole bunch of uh, possibilities with that. And we find two, three biking clubs who did B stunts for movies, and they love to be the primary villains rather than the guys riding in the back so mm -hmm. the hero could do. So that was, that was rather nice.
Yeah, I know there's an, uh, an actual uh, biker club credited in, yes, in the film. Yes, and they were very happy about that. We got them all into SAG. <laughs> how did you find how did you find them like was there just a, a connection to the actual bikers actually the you mean the 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 club yeah the real bikers. no we we went to we paid off a um a casting agent we gave them a fee and they found all their necessities and they also lined up a lot of the actors that we used so there was a one-time fee that uh, Gregory also had flown ahead to California and organized that, and uh, that's where all this came from. Now, you've so. mentioned Gregory Earls a number of times. Can you talk about who he was and uh, what his uh, connection, you know, he was the producer, but what was his connection to these films? How did he get involved? Well, he basically was very important in in the making of both, I think he was involved in Sound and Madness as well. Yeah. And he was a packager of films. And what he did was buy international films. He, and he got one all the way to the Academy Awards uh, for, an, for an international uh, prize, which was The Flight of the Eagle, I think it was called, with Max von Sydow. And he met me because I did the subtitles in English for that film. And, uh, and then he saw that my career, if I, when I, my, my goal, when, whenever I could, I'd like to make movies, but I've made a living servicing other professional movies I did a lot of film for. Uh, you know, the Laurentis uh, worked for him when he was shooting. I did work for uh, a number of French companies that would come to shoot a scene in New York. We would organize the crews. We would rent the equipment, get the insurance, and act as producing companies. And so he saw a couple of the films that had done low budget. And we started with Sonic Madness, where we came up with a 3D idea because we felt that 3D was about to become bigger, and which it didn't at that time because the lens problem and the projection is, became a problem. It's now re been resolved by digital uh, work and also because better lenses are made. But we had a great resistance. I didn't realize that. We hadn't done the, the study of that a horror movie, yes, it has potential in 3D, but if the technology wasn't there, it could be very hurtful, hurtful to the film. So he came and he said, I think I can raise money for this. And I talked to some of my clients who, had, who in, were very interested in the tax credits, and there was a great tax credit going on in, those, in the 80s in New York, in the New York State. And, uh, the tax shelter kind of an idea and one of them said I'm interested in backing him so I put Gregory Earls and this one company uh, Mag Enterprises together who was an offshoot of, of this client for whom I did films uh, the more of a medical nature and he uh, they got together and one day they said okay we got the financing for Sound and Madness out of Sound and Madness came Savage Dawn so and unfortunately we got tied up with a company called Almi for mm -hmm. distribution, and they went bankrupt soon after the film was finished. That was very rough. Yeah. So that really it was a bad piece of news. But uh, the, the experience of doing the films was great for me. But yeah. And are you open to talk a bit about uh, whom or what Mag Enterprise was? No, I, I would rather not. He's retired, and he wants to be very off uh, the beaten path. Uh, he saw the film. He never saw the film when we made it. He saw the film 
recently in 3D in a festival, and he was surprised how good it was, to his opinion. <laughs> his opinion. He, he has not yet seen Savage Dawn, and he would be seeing the BD uh, version, uh, which you are doing. And uh, he bought a, a Blu-ray player. I couldn't believe that he did. I said, I have it already. I said, <laughs> so very happy that he would see Savage Dawn for the first time. It was mainly for money that he did. It was a business decision. Yeah. So what sort of films, you know, you mentioned uh, medical films and industrial films. What sort of films were you primarily working on on a production side, aside from, like, you know, doing subtitles or doing post-production work? I was doing mostly editing at that stage. We were a big editing house. And we were in the Technicolor building when they were midtown in the Times Square area. And they were they occupied two plus floors, and we were on the fifth floor, and we were basically a, a side uh, sort of service company to Technicolor. So we did, for instance, the dubbing of and subtitling, mostly dubbing of most of the Hanna Barbera cartoons. It was done through us. Uh, I'm multilingual, so I was able to. Coordinate, uh, and I had a great dubbing director, the Titra, a few blocks away, did a fantastic dubbing. So we dubbed a lot of movies, and then we dubbed for a lot of uh, low budget distribution uh, horror movies, and that's how I got somewhat interested in the horror film market. They bought films from Japan. I worked with a very in innovative company called Aquarius Releasing that bought yes, Sonny Chiba, Terry Levine, my great friend. And I did a lot of work for him. I cut out his trailers for all his movies. And uh, he was never interested in really producing a movie. But we did do one. He bought The Bodyguard, which was a Japanese mm -hmm. film with Sonny Chiba. And we reshot it. We shot more scenes in New York. Sonny Chiba was flown to New York. We did two, three days of shooting. I had a great, incredible Russian cameraman who carried a blimp 35 millimeter camera on his shoulder on Times Square to shoot him walking. I've never seen anything like that. I couldn't pick up the camera with two other assistants. He just carried it on his shoulder and shot him. And it was a great experience. So yeah, that, 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 that was the kind of entrance I had into this film. For, and then my dream was always to make a bigger and bigger film. And, uh, but it was towards the end of the film era, in a sense, although I, I sensed it. I saw videotape coming, and we got videotape machines, and we started making money doing uh, marketing studies for commercials and, and products. And we realized that there's a lot more money in that than there is for a small you know, uh, producer, distributor, and, and uh, director and manufacturer of small films. Yeah. So that was the end of that. Well, both this film and Silent Madness have a very, I mean, obviously theatrical feel to them. Silent Madness is scope in 3D, and then this is you know, all of the crane shots and the wide vistas. I mean, it, it feels like a big production. We shot with high hopes, <laughs> so, and I tried to hire very good people, the best talent I could find, and we did this for relatively small budgets, so relative to what uh, some very small budgets were in, in the 80s. There were people making features for twenty to thirty thousand dollars, and everybody got a piece of it. In other words, the crew and the actress they were so anxious to work that they just got a piece of the film and minimum pay. And many of them were non-SAG and non-union, 
Then I got into the union uh, kind of film. Then it was more regulated. We had to have SAC contracts and DGA contracts and the like. Uh, I joined the Writers Guild and wrote some scripts, and that's how it evolved. And we were looking to make bigger and bigger films. And this was the hope. And Gregory Oros had a great tie-in with Paramount, and Paramount was very interested in doing some films of this nature that was being done on the East Coast, on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So there was really, uh, Roger Corman was the one who was doing that a lot. And there were a few others who started in the low budget areas, but they didn't have enough there doing, everybody wanted to make big films with big budgets. In this case, 10 to $15 million was a big budget. And every, Roger Corman was doing them for less than a million. So they were looking for more of that kind of market. Yeah. And so that, that's what Gregory Earls, who was friends with the Disney people and Iger and so on, he went back and forth and he said, I think I can get something. They want this. So are you willing to go to California? I said, yes, sir. Yeah, I would do that. What, what happened to Gregory Earls? He retired from the business. Uh, I think he got into some kind of problem because I had read later, way after we disconnected, that, that he had some, uh, some problems with the government, but had nothing to do with, with film. It had something to do with real estate or... Okay. So I don't really know. I've lost touch and nobody can find him. Hmm. He disappeared. He's alive, I'm sure. I would have heard if he didn't, but... How old was he at the time? He was, he's younger than I am. He must have been... When we made this film, he must have been in his late 40s, perhaps, yeah. Okay. He had two small children. He was late forties. Very charismatic person. I liked him. We could, became good friends. But after the Almi deal broke away, and I was against the Almi deal, I didn't want them to distribute it. I didn't think they had the right vision for the distribution of either Silent Madness or Savage Dawn. Uh, he felt it was the best deal that we could get, and he he was a marketing person. He was the executive producer. He made the decision. So. I had little to do with that. I was a paid employee, so to speak. Yeah. How long of a shoot was this? This in California it took us a total of six weeks. Okay. We couldn't work weekends because we didn't have the overtime because there was SAG. We could not work Saturdays and Sundays. We could only work so five it was days five a week. Five day weeks. Five day weeks. Definitely. And we had to cut out, you know, the SAG rules are very strict. We had to take the two-hour dinners, if we worked more than eight hours, and so on and so forth. And I flew to New York every weekend to, you know, continue with August films, make sure they, they, they stayed alive. So mm -hmm. I took the Friday night, I would f drive to LA, go into a plane, take the red eye, come back here, and then Sunday night, take the red eye back, go right to the set. Sounds very uh, overwhelming. Well, when you're young, you're stupid. Fair enough. Um, were there, you know, th this film has a really good cast. And we have Karen Black just walked by, George Kennedy, uh, Lance Hendrickson. Who are the other big people in this? They, they were basically the three biggest ones. The, the other person, and I can't, my name escapes me, I would have to look at the credits for that. It's the first heavy he played in Arizona. Oh. The, the film of the kidnapping, the Joel Cohen film. Oh. Uh, uh, Bill. We have Richard Lynch. No, Richard Lynch was great. Well, I Richard Lynch on the poster. No, yes. Um, yes, it's probably, his name is on the poster. Let me take a look. You're going to edit this anyway. Take a look at it if I see it. 
Ah, I forgot his name. He disappeared completely. Uh, I think it's been four or five. Oh, yeah. And we made... Actually, I didn't have anything to do with that because I wasn't consulted, per se, although I was told that he was going to do it. Um, a very good stuntman um, said that he was a good bike rider. He was the head of the bike club, Bill Forsyth, and he was a heavy. And the third or fourth day of shooting, he decided to do some acrobatics on the motorcycle and broke his leg. And so he was off the set and we couldn't hold it. We couldn't hold the shoot. We had contracts. We had to continue shooting around him and then found out he would not be able to walk well. Uh, he, we couldn't have him. He was a real bad heavy. He couldn't be on a with a cane. We, I guess we could have. We tried all kinds of tricks. He was hurting. He had to only work two, three hours a day. So we had to let him go. He went to Germany to do another film in the meanwhile. And so we had to re-scramble the whole script, which Bill stayed up nights rewriting. And we made the second in command, the heavy. And we destroyed Bill Forsyth, or guy who dressed like Bill Forsyth, yeah. early in the movie. Now, Bill Milling uh, worked on Silent Madness as well. And uh, can you talk about how you started working with him and what your working relationship was? Yeah, Bill was a uh, filmmaker, but he didn't have an office. I had a fairly large office, August Films. He was introduced to me. I can't remember, I think by Mick Ribbon, of all people, who was uh, not my soundman on this film, but he, he did sound for me, and he acted in a movie that I produced. Uh, an Italian director came, and he was a soundman in Florida for this film. And he oh, had, Nightmare. Nightmare. Yes, oh. by Romano Scavolini. Yes, <laughs> who still calls me from time to time. And, and all of a sudden, they lost their lead man, and Mick became the lead of the film, and his assistant sound man recorded the movie. So that's a multi-talented fellow. And he introduced me to Bill, who wanted to do more and more film. He was interested in theater, but more in films. And I met with him, and I saw he could write. He was great at coming up with sets. He could get things for nothing, mansions. And uh, we, we were able to shoot on the Staten Island Ferry for no money at all. They allowed us to shoot there. We did all kinds of good things. And I said, you want to do a film with me? He said, yes. Said, Can I write it? Can I produce it with you? I said, no, I take all the way from you. All I want to do is direct it and I come up with a story. And he, he, that's how he got into Silent Matters. And Bill was also an actor. He was. He became an actor because he, he, he used to ride a bike. And he said, can I be one of the bikers? Mm. And then he went. He got his sack card. Yeah. He, he's a nightmare as well. Yes, he's a he nightmare. He plays the psychiatrist. Yeah. He went with my Mick to yeah. Florida. Yeah. Did you work on Nightmare? Mm, yeah, we cut it in the office. Okay. So I helped uh, Scavolini put it together, and we edited it at Katina and at, sorry at August Films. And except for that, I was just behind the scenes. I, I never went to the set or anything. I just they reported to me every two three days. I was sort of. Uh, line producer on it from afar. Hmm. 
Now, was this a, uh, you talked about how you built a lot of the sets. Were you actually constructing full-on sets? Yes. Or, so yeah. th was this a, on a stage? Yes. No, it was a desert location that was totally open that had, because of the prior movies that I've shot there, a carpentry shop, it had a full um, plumbing and electrical shop. All those things were left on the side of the, of, of the, what they call the main street, which was the, mm. coming in from the gate, you drove about half a mile, and you wind up in this area, which was totally elastic. And uh, the company that owned it said, you can build anything you want. At the end of it, we would just like you to take it down. That's all. So uh, we had a good designer and everything there. We rented props or built them. Uh, bar scenes, we would rent an entire bar in, in Hollywood. That's so easy to do. And they just brought it up by truck and put it down. And three days later, took it down and took it away. So that's how, how, how we did it. It's interesting that you actually did like put all of these locations together from scratch as opposed to using existing locations. So many of the independent filmmakers I've spoken with who made movies at this time, like the one of the ways that they saved money was, you know, they found something that looked close to what they wanted and they slightly dressed it. You're talking then, sound and madness because yeah. they had done, we had that hospital that had been let go, that was uh, condemned in in Jersey City, and I think, I forget the name of the company on 8th Avenue that did a horror film, film there, and so they left a lot of this stuff behind. It was a very famous company that did B-type horror movies. Trauma? Yes, yes, thank you. And I can't remember the movie either, but yes, so they left it behind, and there we adapted Sounded Madness to fit into that that was already built. And of course, the hospital milieu is what we wanted. And the rest of the outside sets, that was easy to find in New Jersey. They were very, very friendly to us. They wanted so much to make it into a movie uh, area, a, a new location area, because New York was getting all the, all the work and nothing in New Jersey. And so we spoke to very, various mayors. That's basically what Bill Minning did. And he's very, he has a great persona, Bill. Mm -hmm. He was going to be a priest at one stage. He was, he, he got out of the seminary right before he was going to become it. He says, not life for me, became a filmmaker instead. And he would go and get us the most incredible sets and deals because he made it so sumptuous and said, oh, you're gonna have, it's going to be all over the United States. You're going to see your house or your garage or whatever. It came up, I love it. You know what's random about that is that Mick Cribben told me that his brother is a priest. Yes, that's why he wanted to be a priest. That's why Bill wanted to be a yeah, priest? Yeah, yeah. And he went all the way through. And it's, you know, they get, like, so he told me, Bill, the week before they finally become a priest, they get a week off to sort of get drunk or do things to get that out of their system. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he says, this is not for me and quit. <laughs> sort of like what uh, Mormons do, I guess. Yes, the, it's exactly this. I think Mormons may have co copied it from the Catholics yeah. that came way before. <laughs> yeah. So that was the story. And I liked Bill from the beginning. He was very enthusiastic. He always said yes. I said, do you think we can get a plane? We were going to do a film called May Day, which is a book by De by DeMille. And we had the rights from DeMille and uh, Nelson DeMille. And he, he just, we couldn't get all the elements together on time. And Savage Dawn then came to replace it. But 
the financing was going to be for May Day. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Mm. So it's one where the air runs out inside of a gigantic passenger plane and everybody becomes a zombie except a few people who got oxygen. So oh, it's the world of the zombies within a plane. May Day is a wonderful, wonderful story. We liked it a lot. And Nelson came and helped us with Savage Dawn. He, he wrote a couple of, uh, helped build Bill and Nelson DeMille became friends. And some elements here are from Nelson. I think he gets a credit in it, if I remember. Well, I, I noticed that, I can't remember the name offhand, but there was another credit along with Bill's credit for, I think, additional material. Is it, it Bob Zimmerman? Maybe. Oh, it could have been Nelson DeMille. It wasn't Nelson DeMille. No. Bob sounds more likely. Yeah, probably. And Bob Zimmerman was a production manager, excellent production manager, one of the best I've ever worked with. And he wrote. His his ambition was to become a screenwriter. And last I heard, he went to San Francisco, and I told Bob that is not the place to make movies. And so it disappeared into San Francisco. I don't know where he is now. He's gone, but he, he, he wrote another script from another story I had which was in the same vein of uh, the simple man fighting against against the mass and surviving and they didn't we couldn't get couldn't get it financed at the stage and we couldn't get it done but he's a very good writer so i think that bob may have worked with him if, if he's the one who was in it i can't recall either who did that was this film bigger budget than silent madness yes it was it was i think it was probably about twice the budget of Silent Madness because of, again, working on location because we yeah. had to go out. We couldn't just take a bus or a van and cars and drive to New Jersey. We had to go all the way to California and put everybody up and travel with the entire crew and cast. There was Bill Forsyth, Cara Black. That's, there his leg was broken. That's why you don't see a full shot of him. <laughs> so, yeah, the... Um, the trip to California was at the behest of Gregory Earls because he felt he could possibly get Paramount to back a whole series of low budgets. This is when ABC was starting to make movies for television. They also were looking for lower budget for the television movie of the week kind of yeah. stuff. And so he was hoping to get there. But he was a marketing person. I just listened. I said, yeah, whatever you say, I'll write a script and do it. Do you know if uh, the, the film was screened for any studios? Yes, it was screened for a number of studios, but I wasn't present for that. Uh, Greg took it to California and screened it to a number of people, but nobody really wanted it that I know of. I mean, I don't know what was behind the scenes. Uh, he never gave me a full story on it. He just said, no, the deal, the way he put it, being a businessman, Yes, we can get this or that, but the deals are not good. Yeah. And then Almi made him a deal that he says he couldn't refuse. And they got all the rights and they sold the television rights, they sold the video cassette rights for it, and then they went bust. I think it came out on video, I may be wrong on this, but from either Embassy or Vestron. Yes, yes, in fact, your Vestron, I think is correct. Okay. In a disc. I think they made uh, yeah, a uh, Not a CEU, yeah. probably. Yeah, I can't. I was out of it by then because I was basically, uh, I was supposed to be a partner in it. I had 
a partnership in the making of the film and I had a percentage that I was supposed to get from the income or the profits the, yeah. the net and then I had a salary and in Sun and Madness I got my salary in Savage Dawn I never did get it so I worked for nothing in this film which is I didn't mind it because at least I didn't have to pay for my food or <laughs> trips something so on, but I didn't get a salary for this yeah, it, it's really, uh, you know, lo looking at it in widescreen and with some color correction, it, it's, it feels like a big film. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's so many scenes like this where there's a lot of people. And, and also Gregory Arrow, I mean, I'm sorry, Jerry Files. Jerry Files, great lighting director. I mean, he's a cinematographer. He took his time, which unfortunately was against what I wanted to do so much. I, we used to shoot and run, shoot and run, shoot and run. He would set up and set up and set up and set up. And that, you know, we had discussions about that. He says, either I do my job well, the way I'm trained to do it as a cinematographer, or I want to walk off the picture. And I didn't want him to walk off the picture. So we compromised, but we had one example of it was a dawn scene that we shot and we set up around two in the morning by midnight we got prepared to set and magic hour was going to be the last shot of this of that scene it was when the sun started to come and and lance and and the leading lady were going to be on top of a tower which we constructed on top of a mountain and looking over the valley and the town was all lit downstairs and you know it was a romantic moment and we didn't quite make it the sun came up and it just <laughs> and in california when it comes up within a minute all of a sudden it's a blazing sun yeah and i said how can this happen we planned it for three days we shot and the lighting took so long to do it to light the town to all walkie-talkies, and all of a sudden we need a backlight in the jail, get the jail lit. And I said, no, the hell with the jail, let's shoot. The actors are falling asleep on the set. But there's minors, I said, problems that come up in every low-budget film, where you cannot go the next day and shoot yet again. It's running out of time. I'm always curious when talking to directors about how they work with cinematographers, like to the extent that, you know, were, were you designing the shots and he was executing them or was he designing it, the shots and discussing them? With it you? was partnership. When it comes to lighting, it comes to the movement of the camera, the angles, I would choose pretty much with him what I want, I want a close-up, I want a mid-shot, I want a long shot, I would like the camera to start on the left side and pan or travel to the right side. But he would design that because if I said something to him, he would say, no, it can't be done, it's going to take twice as long. And I, I was boycotted from doing it because no, we can't take twice as long, we have three more sh scenes to shoot today. Uh, I learned my lesson with a, with a film I did called New York Nights, where they brought in, the producer brought in a, uh, a great uh, English DP, and he was really my partner. He would just mm. ask me, what do you want, Simon? And I would say, this is the effect I like. And he would produce it. I would, all I do is stand in awe, 
with Jerry, it was basically a different kind of partnership because he knew how to do specific shots that he knew would work out well, and I gave in to that. So I said yes. See, that's I'm not unhappy with the look of the film. The lighting, the the effects are really, the, but it just to me it took a bit longer than I'm used to being a shoot and run kind of a director. And related, how many takes would you generally be getting? Very often, unfortunately, because of the nature of the timing, we got one take when we knew it was good. I had a great, uh, very good assistant. We didn't have video playback in those days, so there was no way of reviewing it in any way through a video output. Uh, we would just have to guess it. And this woman, who was my assistant director, and also did continuity at the same time, she, she said, her eyes and she trusted Jerry file she said yes this is a shot it's good and if I thought the acting was good enough for that and sometimes I was not happy with it but there's nothing I could do I, I knew that and some actors we only had contract for three days and I knew that I just would not get the other there wasn't the time no, to wasn't the time because it's in three more days not that they would leave they wanted to leave they had another contract yeah television series or something and I said no okay let's do it so the compromises, but I think all filmmaking is compromise, unless you're Spielberg, and I don't know, maybe he has to compromise too, I don't know. I worked with Coppola on his redux, his new Apocalypse Now, the new recut that he's done in talking to, to people in the production. He, he really had to bite his hand very hard many times when the producers came to the set. They said, you have too much of this, you're going to cut this scene out. And, he just went on, and you know, I think there's a struggle always between the creative and the producing side. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you struggle, and you, you sort of compromise the best you can through it, or you get fired. So, was uh, Gregory Earl on set the entire time? No, he was mostly in Washington, D.C. He would come maybe every week for a day or two and then disappear again. And did you therefore have a lot of freedom to make the film as you wanted? Yes, he didn't care about how I made the film. I just, he wanted to have the names, he wanted to have the value of the sets, he wanted to have a great look in it, and to, for us to stick to the story. But except for that, he was not in oversight uh, to the film. There basically was my decision of what to do, how to maneuver. But all that was built. It's, the church in the background, everything is... So that was fully constructed? Fully constructed. Was it like an empty space or was it... Well, it uh, was, but the streets were lined out. So in other words, okay. there, there were streets and there were stone like this, and, and like you see in the film, and, and the rest, all the edifices were really flats. And then sometimes, because we were so poor, we would know that we finished with a scene. We'd rip the flats out and painters would come repainted white and move mm -hmm. in another place and put some windows in it. They were fantastic. I mean, this is Jerry Fyle bringing some very, very well-practiced, good carpenters and builders who loved doing this. And they, they had a ball because it was such a challenge. They didn't have to build one set and then relax and do nothing but stand by in case a window broke. They, they were rebuilding all the time. It was wonderful. I liked that a lot. We know it's shots like this. That's Sally, who was her 
Sound and Madness, uh, that's who got dragged on the motorcycle for the kid, Sally Marks. Did you bring a lot of people from uh, your New York regular crew to work on this film? No, we brought only the essential because we couldn't afford all the trips. So we brought, uh, the, the sound man was, uh, nor, uh, was uh, the, the assistant camera, I think it was Wexler's son who was assistant cameraman. He had a lot of friends, young, very, active sound people and so and then the, and through Jerry File that they organized a crew, main crew there. And we brought back just Bill was there. Um, there was one or two others from New York who helped, which were assistants to just to coordinate things and the rest was all hired, local talent. And of course I didn't realize how difficult it is for a New York director to work in California. <laughs> in what sense? Uh, there was resistance to things I asked. Like what? So we don't do things here like that. We don't do it. We do it different. So I said, well, how do you do it? He says, we do it our way. I said, okay, can you do it in four hours? Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. But in New York, I had a lot more control. Also, I hired crews that I always, I, I'm a person who likes to work with teams. I like to develop a team and try to bring as many people on the team that I know together for film after film and there's a loyalty to get set up. There I had no loyalty set up at all. Jerry was very good to me but he had his own way of doing it and he was crossing both, he had a leg on both coasts and he was very well known on the west coast and he tried not to offend anybody there so he would bend a lot more with the craftspeople. And the people that I could rely on heavily are the New York crew people, you know, Bill and the few others. Yeah, the, the regulars. The regulars, my, 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 my team. But I'm not, I'm elastic, I'm not stubborn about that. And I said, okay, let them do their job. And I think in general, they did their job well. I think the, everything, they set the cores and so on. And now the, the film was only shot about two thirds of it on location and then we went to the desert with the desert shoot then we went to a mine which was great it was mm -hmm. wonderful it was an empty mine and it was finished and they were using it for tourists to come to this little town and go down to see how the mine was it and they let us have the mine for three four days and we shot what was basically george kennedy's home down at the bottom of the earth that was very exciting so there were a lot of challenges which were very nice but often bill would go out if he wasn't doing something on the set. He would go the night before and find us another set outside and say, Oh, Simon, I found this great factory with all machinery that's abandoned. How about? And we come up with a scene that we would just change to an old machinery. I assume this is the mine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. So wonderful. And he, he found them. I mean, Bill would. And, and Jerry had a plane, so he flew. He would take when the days off on the weekends when I was away, they would take on the, in his Cessna and fly all over and find spots from the air and then land nearby in some field and go try to make a deal and Bill would do it and then come back. It was, it was sort of gunslinger type filmmaking. It was enjoyable. So aside from uh Bill Forsythe's leg injury. 
Were there any substantial changes between the script and what ended up being shot? Not of any substantial. We'd lost an actress who, I just couldn't say no to her. She got a tremendous rail. I mean, she was supposed to be there in and out as a secondary character throughout the whole film. And I would say one third into it, she came to see me. She said, Simon, I got a chance of a lifetime. It's a big union film, big time. I can't stay, can let me off? And I called Gregory Earls. I said, well, I'm going to replace her. I'm going to take another one of the women and change the role around a bit. But that's when they didn't change the storyline or anything. Nothing like that. Bill was the biggest thing that we had to really maneuver around because he was going to be heavy all the way to the end and we couldn't do it. So, but that's, but uh, yes, that is mine, you can tell, right? Yeah. A real nice place, we loved it. The town people were very nice, they hung around, and that's the bottom of it. That's just wonderful stuff. Destroying that motorcycle. We did, well, it was a wreck. So we bought a wreck that didn't have an engine. We they made a wooden engine for it, mm. and then that's the one we threw over. They copied one of the real bikes. There's good people in California that really are some very good, clever, and they love their jobs. They're, they're artists, really, in a sense. Were all of the uh, the craft and construction and uh, non, I guess, camera and actor people all union? Many were, but because they were shooting outside of Los Angeles proper in Orange County, they, we paid them anyway, but we... If they stayed over time, they didn't report it. Mm -hmm. They wanted to. Uh, the painter would be halfway painted. I said, oh, it's 5 o'clock, you got to quit. He says, ah, I, I'm going to hang around here. And he kept on painting. You know, they were, there was a good feeling um, from all the people there. They, they all loved working there. They liked it. They, they were happy. There was no pressures. There was no producers running around screaming at them, go yeah. work faster. And they, were, they were having a little vacation. So in a sense, it was not too bad. And we tried to get good hotels for them to stay, motels nearby. So the, some of the craft people, many drove back to LA to their homes. They had families and so on. But a couple of them, a few of them, the key people say, hey, we'll stay, I'm single. I'll stay here within half an hour. And, and, and we would pay all that for them. They were very happy to do that. Do you remember what time of year this was uh, made? Yeah, yeah, it was shot. I think we shot this in May and June. May and June, I think that's when the, uh, we, we went out. Uh, I was casting in the winter and we built the set towards the end of April. And May, June is when we shot this. How so long was the, uh, the pre-production? Like the it took another six weeks. But okay. I only came once or twice to look at the things because we all raw stuff coming up, and um, they just I just came towards the end, and then the last before we shot, I was I stayed three days and we plotted all our moves with Jerry, and Bill was involved, and how we're going to get from set to set, and 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 how to do the production schedule to, to get the maximum usage of all the people who are going to be there. This scene has some really lovely lighting with the fire this, and the backlighting. Yeah, this is, this is what Jerry filed. That's really superb. He did think I was very happy with his work from that point of view. I just, 
I wish I could have had six more weeks to shoot, to do better scenes and take longer and reshoot when you needed to because we got dailies. We set up a screening. There was a, a the, the big tent where we had our dinners and our lunch uh, there and we brought a cameraman and we had uh, the, the dailies coming in every day from, from uh, Los Angeles. We looked at them, made comments and very often two or three of us in the top tier said, Boy, we would love to reshoot this scene. It's just not exactly what we had. And then we hoped that the editors would be able to save it. Did you do any reshoots? No, we didn't do any reshoots at all. When the shot was done, we were out of it. And then we went still a couple of days over schedule. So we had to talk to the people who were leasing us the place because we had a schedule of building, then shooting, then taking the set apart. And they had another film coming behind us. So they said, by such and such a day, you got to be out and all, everything had to be cleaned up. So that was sort of strenuous. It's not like, okay, I can come back to the set and shoot. It was, it was over. And as I said, and many, many of the shots that we did, we destroyed the set to build another one for the next yeah. day. So, so there wouldn't have been a way to even go back and... Reshoot. That's exactly right. This was the outside of the of our of our of the set. I mean, of the, or the, the like ranch, the, the wall so, around yeah, it. That, yeah. that was not that. the gate we built. It's wood. Would you uh, would you do a lot of coverage for we the? We tried as okay. much as we could. Yeah. At that time, film was the cheapest part of the entire production, yeah. the stock. And we had the cameras, we had the crew, we had everything. I said, burn up as much film as you can. Yeah, of course, that we couldn't do it because at some stage we had to cut the scene to go to the next one. But we tried to cover as much as we can. We planned it. It was well storyboarded so that we could follow. But then the storyboard broke away because things didn't happen the way we wanted it. Was the film fully storyboarded? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So, in terms of doing the storyboards, uh, was that done based on the assumption that the sets were going to be built as per the storyboard, or was it done more speculatively? No, loosely. No, the storyboard was mostly scenic from a point of view of the actors, there would be a house, but we never knew what the house would look like or what would a church look like. Sure. They were not really models for the for the people to work on because we didn't have yet that. That's the shot I'm talking about. The tower about. shot, which you yeah. would have done magic hour. Yeah. You look at the town that was lit, you know, the amount of lighting it takes to go into desert, but there's nothing to do this. And there's a lot of gelled lighting. Uh, Throughout, I mean, the, the, you know, that, that shot of the town is a good example. Like, there's, you know, there's green and there's purple and there's yeah, red. Yeah, and, that's Jerry uh, Files magic. Yeah, I mean, the, the film is is really colorful. Like, even a scene like this, which isn't particularly colorful, like there's still a nice and there's depth balance. Also, yeah, and when they walk through, if you notice the uniforms of those two guys, they they stay lit all the way, and this is mm -hmm. dark. I mean. They, there was a tunnel of light for them to walk in. Not too many shadows, not hundreds of shadows on the ground. It's, it's like, this is magic to me, in a sense. 
I don't ask the cameraman or the, the DP to do that. I just, that's what he wanted to do. And that's why I like to get good DPs. I think DPs are very crucial mm -hmm. to making films. The director, the DP, and the editor. Oh, the editor. Yeah, that's another story. Well, uh, what, what's the story then? <laughs> that Gregory Did, did your company edit the film? Uh, they, it was then in my company on my cams, but it was the, there was a union editor who did it, Jerry Greenberg, who was one of the a couple of Apocalypse Now editors. He came to do it. He charged an arm and a leg. He was charging a week, what I charged, that was my fee for the entire film. And he brought Bill, what's his name? He brought now one of the, his assistant editor basically cut the film in, and the main editor would come in and tell him what to do, which is fine. He's directed yeah. the editing. And let's see if I can look up the name of Bill, the assistant editor. He cut it, and I've been working with him now in major films. He is phenomenal. He's one of the hottest Hollywood editors now. So we, we hire an editing crew that probably paid much, we got paid much more than... And the production crew? And uh, there was some resentment. I didn't resent it. I was trying to make a movie. I didn't care. You know, I was hoping to make a few million dollars from the profits, right? Yeah. <laughs> Big deal. And and then we went to Italy to to do the music with Donaggio, yeah, Donaggio. Who, who who was the assistant who worked for twenty five years with uh, um, Marconi. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, yeah, Ennio Morricone. Yeah, Ennio Morricone. So he was Ennio Morricone's right-hand man, and he did the whole score. And I had to go to Italy and sit there for two weeks at Sony Studios doing the score with him. I had no idea what I was doing. Do you remember how Donaggio uh, ended up being hired to do the score? That was done through Gregory Orr's con contacts. Okay. So he called somebody in Hollywood. They said, oh... Uh, Donaggio works on a lot of westerns with Ennio Morricone. He knows his stuff. He knows exactly the kind of pacing and timing and, and instruments to use. He would love to do an American movie. So, And this is right around this. So he, he'd already been working with Brian De Palma. Yes. And this, is, this film was made right around the same time as yeah. Body Double. Yes, yes. Which he did, right? Yeah. He did music for that too. So he wanted to do a western very badly. So it was perfect. <laughs> it was a good mix. I enjoyed the whole experience. I ate a lot of good pasta in Italy. But I went, I, I went to the studios and just sat there like a dummy. And he would come to me and say, "Do you like this score?" I said, "Yes, sir." <laughs> I had to bow to him. He was a master at it. And he came to. In fact, he was so excited about doing it that we had the rap party. He came flew to New York to be at the rap party. She was very nice. I guess he got enough money to do it. <laughs> yeah. So g getting back to the editing, yes. um, were you also in the editing? Yes, I, that I was. I tried as much as I could. And Jerry Greenberg, no question about it, knew what he was doing. He knew how to put the scenes together. He knew how to cut it. He knew how to make cutaways. He did all that very smoothly. I would come up with a couple of ideas when I felt the scene was too long, or oh, they lost something in the scene where I thought. And, and he and, and Bill would, name I still don't remember, uh, he and Bill would discuss it, and they would make a couple of other cuts, changes, 
And there was always, like everything else, the whole movie was always a compromise. Yeah. But uh, I was not unhappy with the, with the editing of the film. Uh, altogether, I think all this idea of the tank was not my most favorite tool, but we got it for nothing, so we used a tank. I mean, that's how this came about. We never had a tank in the original script. It has production value. Yeah. And it's also another gimmick. <laughs> I mean, this is all, in, it, this, all these shots were totally done, totally separately in two separate days because we couldn't take a chance to miss out the dramatic scenes and then destroy the set. Yeah. So we had to go look at the dailies and then bring the tank back uh, to, to do the, the finishing shot. But I think uh, yes, movie making is not unusual for a small budget to do that. Were there any uh, films that even, even that that motel the motel sign, sign is beautiful. Yeah, that's from all. another movie. What uh, we found it sitting in there in the. But couch. it adds nice color. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the uh, Jerry Fine looked at this motel sign that was sitting on the ground and he said to the carpenter does that work so, yeah I guess you plug it in and work and incorporate it there into it the set were there any other films that you were taking stylistic or tonal inspiration from I don't think so I I I like action movies I like a lot of things happening on the screen I like interaction between many forces at once but I can't remember strictly, I mean, there are certain films that I really love, like The French Connection I thought was superb, but there's nothing on The French Connection in this, for instance. I, it, it, there's some films that I really, you know, would love to be able to make, but this one is more or less a hodgepodge of ideas that came together from a number of people and I just tried to make the best of it at the time and use the most imaginative shots that I could come up with with Jerry and said, okay, what can we do that's different? He said, oh, we've got a crane. Let's get the crane way up and, and do a beautiful shot. And then we had to redress the town. And so there were things that, that worked. Well, there's well. a lot of really nice crane shots in this film. Yes, he he's, loves cranes, Jerry Farrell. So he took me into it and I didn't say no. I thought that gave it some professional look because very few small filmmakers can do crane shots. That's, today you can with a drone, but you, those days that was a big camera, heavy camera. Easy, not easy to do to make it move smoothly. Just talk with some of the actors for uh, a moment. Uh, when, when the casting was being done, were there actors that you were specifically trying to get for roles? I wanted Bill Forsyth who I had seen in Arizona, I wanted him to be uh, taking Arizona, I think it was called, the film, the Joel Cohen. Uh, oh, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. That's a later film, though. That's oh. from 87. Yeah. Oh, a, there, I saw him in another film. Oh, wait a second. He was in in the... the Dino De Laurentiis did a film about New York, and he played one of the heavies, a mafioso. I see him in another film. Yeah, we were, we were cutting this, I think. 
I saw him in Raising Arizona. I did write this afterwards. I forget what film he was in, but he played a heavy, and I said, oh, he's a perfect heavy. He was so nasty in this film. Can't remember which one it is. And we called his agent, and he, he was willing to do it. And Richard Lynch, oh, I liked him a lot. I'd seen him in a couple of horror movies. He was great, and so we got him easily. And George Kennedy was basically somebody who, because of his involvement with Greg Earls, was willing to do it. He wasn't doing too many films then. And uh, Karen Black, I loved from Five Easy Pieces. I would love to work with her, and she, she loved the, the idea. And she enjoyed the film a lot. So some of the principles, the, the leading lady, I, I did not know her very well, but she was very adequate for it and the price was right and we were we had a tight budget the big money went to to karen black and and george kennedy and richard lynch got a big piece of it and lance was very good about it he he lowered his feet to be the the hero he sort of been a second banana so he was very you know lance was willing to work for a fixed contract rather than that they so it was very good Got everybody there enjoyed making the movie. They, they liked. She's the girl who quit. Okay. And so we had more scene with her, and we had to change them all around. Did you do auditions? Yes, we did some. We we read in Hollywood. I went there for two weeks altogether, and we read. And Greg Girls came for that, and I think Bill Milling was there with me too, because he was then looking for sets. I don't know that. Jerry filed came at that stage I can't recall but Bill uh, Greg and I were there and we rented a, a, a casting office and they had everything there and we just shot uh, some tests and stills mainly and uh, and picked the people and most people were willing to work because it, there was limited time. We, it was a short shoot, in a sense. Six weeks is not a gigantic shoot, and they weren't shooting yeah, every day. Yeah, five-day five weeks would come in as well. For, yeah, no weekends. It was good. So they all said, yes, why not? So, even the candles, I mean, to manage the candles to the lighting. Is well, there's a nice uh, diffusion yeah. filter, I think, being yeah, used there as well. That. There was a lot of that. And that's, uh, that comedian was a friend of Bill Milling in California. He died. He was a good friend of Howard Stern. But, uh, the, 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 the barber. Yeah. He was, I can't remember his name at the moment. Oh. He, he, he was the son of a preacher. He became a very dirty comedian, stand-up comedian. And I think he died of it. He got hit by a... Oh, he was going to Las Vegas for a one-man show, and he got hit on the road, head-on. Died, died in a head-on collision in another car. Can't recall his name. So we got him for one day, and he played a barber for the shot. Bill Milling found him in a bar. He said, do you want to do... you want to be a barber in a movie? Sure. He came down and did it. Did you do much rehearsing with the actors? We didn't have much time. We did rehearsals in the in the trailers. We read the lines every morning. 
everybody like to show up early. The, the actors want to rehearse. They do want to do their best job. So they, they were willing to come. But SAG has rules for that because that's extra pay. And yeah. so on. so we did maybe with the principals, we did one or two days of roundtable reading of the scripts in uh, the cast, in, in, in an agent, I think the casting agent's office. But other than that, it was basically rehearsing right on the set a couple of times while they were setting up the lights and so on. We would just work out the, the and then Jerry would say, they can't walk there because it will be lit. They have to walk <laughs> here. So we, you know, it's not blocking. It was not yeah. the worst thing. It is. That's easy. And actors are very flexible for things like that. So it worked very well. But shots like this are designed uh, so that everybody gets lit in the proper way. And, and there's so. so much intricacy to scenes like this uh, with regards to the lighting, like on the door frame, there's yes. all of the small pockets of blue light and yeah, that's on the floor. and The back wall, which is not, yeah. it's, a, it's a fake wall, it's a, made out of cardboard. So, and, it's, uh, and in this, all these scenes were shot early on after his broken leg and you see him walking Bill Forsyth very little because he couldn't move around everything had to be done so he's sitting on a little stool there to do that yeah. scene so this was shot before his broken yeah. leg? no okay. no this was shot after he, yeah he broke his leg very early on and then he says I can only shoot a couple of hours so we had to break a sh shot so that okay Bill can get back from the therapist at 11 o'clock and by 2 he has to be back to relax or do something else, medical x-rays. So we had the three hours and we would take a waiver for lunch. Everybody would have lunch except a few of us and we'd shoot the scene and then they all had their lunch and that's a bit messy but doable. Yeah. Cut away back. <laughs> Do you remember what kind of uh, release the film had? Uh, it when, did, when Almy put it out, like, do you remember it playing theaters? Yeah, it played a couple of theaters, but not in New York. Never played in New York. The, that, that biker is not a biker. He's a country western singer. Which one? The, the guy who just shot. Uh, oh, okay. The, the comedian. <laughs> he wanted it so much. He's done a few more films since, but he loved. He wanted to be an actor so badly. Yeah, so th this, uh, I think this scene was not shot on the ranch. This is in another city, in another town in Northern California. This is the same, I think this set is the set where the, where the mine was. So it shot out of sequence. It was a trip. I decided then that I would not go back to California to shoot again, unless I lived there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, shooting a film in a place that you're literally commuting to the other side of the country weekly is it's a bit of a... Well, that wasn't so much the bad thing. That I had no rapport with... I mean, I had to do everything through Jerry, who was and had his, his feet on both areas. And I had a few other people in the key crew who the gaffer liked me a lot because 
I always let him have what he needed to do the lighting. The sound people liked me because I, I said, hey, I want to have good sound as good as I can because I'm not going to go to ADR. I'm just going to go straight to a mix. I can't yeah. with this. So, so there was cooperation from everybody. And so uh, there were a few people who were sort of nice to me, and, but other people just gave me a rough time because every time I asked them to do something, they said, we don't do that here. Like I'm from out of town, so uh, there was a bigger sense that uh, you know they can sort of push their weight around. But they could, because yeah. what could I do? They walk off. What do I do? What do I get another carpenter? I can't. Carpenter, the the, the building crew, they they were really technicians who were did their jobs and they were happy that we left them alone and gave them all the materials they wanted. Oh, we want more wood. We want more planks. We want more four by eights. Well, yes, order them and got it for him. And my internal crew, my assistant director, the two assistants, second assistants, they were great, they were very loyal, they told me everything that was going on, they told me there were problems on the set, what I should do about it, but uh, they were, I treated them very well, and I, you know, I said, hey, I'm in your hands, you, you gotta tell me what you want to do, and it worked. That, it, I don't have bad memories. I have the bad memories that always come from post-production because at the end of the film, we went to Sound One, which is a big sound company here in New York City, to do all the post-sound, uh, the the foliage. And it was an $80,000 bill, and Greg Earls ran out of cash. He said, I can't pay it. I said, I can't get the film out. He says, if we don't get it out, you have to convince them we are going to have to go to Almi and say we can't deliver. And so I took it out of my savings account, which is not pleasant. My wife was not too happy, but I said I'd get it back. And I did get it back, but it, you know, I, there's, there were post-production problems which were not to my liking from that point of view. But this is the vicissitudes of a low-budget film, which has little control for the producers not sitting there, pencil and paper, to make sure. I paid with my diner's card one motel where we couldn't leave to go to the next set because they were supposed to wire the money to the motel. It was about $12,000 bill. Mm -hmm. And they said, you can't leave until this gets paid. We lock all the rooms. And so they took my diner's card. I called diner's club. I said, I'll guarantee it. I have a house. I own a house. Yeah, I guarantee it. And they said, okay. And then uh, Mag Enterprises paid it. So that was very nice of them. And the, the funding itself came from MAG Enterprises? Mainly, yes. I think there okay. were other partners, other parties there, but I was not involved in that. That was okay. Gregory Earl's thing. There were other people there who, for one reason or another, all formed part of the MAG Enterprises umbrella and did not, they, they responded to, to MAG. And the, uh, the other parties didn't ever ask or come by or see anything they just it was pure investment yeah tax shelter type thing and so uh, we had funding difficulties towards the end and that was in post-production more than anything because as, as I said the editing cost so much money that we were you know money was flowing out and when you're in the union they have to have this bonded. In other words, somebody is responsible. There is a security. The editors are going to get paid. They don't walk off from a film 
halfway and I said, okay, we quit because they get the full contract. That's it. So that was that was all sealed and delivered and all done by Greg Earl. So I was sort of out of it. I was happy to have a very good editor in it. And it could, I mean, we liked on that. And was he brought in by Greg Earls? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he, he called somebody in California and, and uh, um, found him and he says, well, we're going to have a fantastic editor. It's going to, all these names on the screen is going to be important to sell the film to a major distributor. Mm. And cut by such and such. He says, you have no name at all, me. So I said, but we'll have so many you know, good names in the, on the screen, actors, and so on. Interesting little story, so let's see who can pick it up. Yeah, selling the film by the, uh, the, the combined value of yes, the talent. Yes, 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 exactly right. When's the last time you... I know you watched it, I think, maybe in the last few weeks, but when was the last time you saw the film before this recent experience? Uh, since uh, you brought us into the into the fold again, probably in 1987, maybe, last time I saw the film. So around not long after it was uh, yes. finished. Yes. Only because I... I couldn't do anything with the film. I didn't know what to do about it, and then things worked out. And then when the lab, quote unquote, lost the negative, uh, then it became a real serious thing. I had been in charge of the post-production, but then I closed August Psalms, and everything was left in good hands, and Greg was still around, mm-hmm. organizing, trying to get distribution and so on. And then he disappeared, and then I was left with who do we call? And Precision Labs, which had finished the film, we, we tried to do a Technicolor, but we couldn't get a good deal. Precision was a good enough lab. And a good, I liked the, the colorizing people there, the people who did the color correction. I liked the timers. I liked everybody there. So I said, okay, we'll go with Precision. And then Precision disappeared. And yeah. then we couldn't find it. And then a miracle happened. Don't know how that happened, but it happened, and the negatives were found. So I got back into the fold. So you mentioned uh, early on that one of the things that Greg wanted to do was make, uh, potentially make TV movies. Yes. Uh, Was that something that he was interested in you directing? Yes. Well, I had written two, three scripts that he liked. One of them was very interesting. In fact, I even had a deal with Universal to make the film. I was going to make it for them. They wanted to buy my script, but an event happened that didn't work out. So I lost it. They made it anyway without my permission. A similar film, but you cannot. What was the film, if you mind saying? Yeah, no, no, not at all. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, they didn't make it with my name, but the storyline was very simple. It was when Soho was being developed, there was a lot of construction going on here. And there were very often, and I met one architect who lived in one of the floors to develop an entire building for condos or co-ops, whatever we want to do. And so I built a family unit with him, his wife, and his son. And the son wanted to be a mountain climber, so he would go up and down the fire escape in the back, just test himself and learn how mm. to climb and 
and all the things. And there was an artist living on the top floor with a group of friends, and they were building this sculpture. And he would see through the slats and building this sculpture. They were they happened to be Arabs, and they happened to be always talking in Arabic. And, and he found it suspicious. He got suspicious of the kid because they would never say hello to him. They were very guarded. And he tried to tell his father, if I said, come on, don't worry about it. We have some income for the building where these people are making their studio up there. They're living there. That's quite all right. And then he goes to the police and the police says, come on, kid, get away from here. He's going to school like Stuyvesant. Yeah. And he wants to be an engineer. So he fools around there with the equipment and he he learns about radiation and they have a radiation meter. One day he says he's going to take the radiation meter and see if he can. And sure enough, it starts to click. And he gets very suspicious. And he goes back to one of the detectives and tells him what he did. And the detective says, you were stealing equipment from your school. You could go to jail. He says, it's clicking. I mean, you're going to put me in jail? It's clicking. And he's, the detective says, I'll come and give you a hand. And he follows him around and he parks his car in front of him. But the people on the top floor discover him and they kill him one day he's dead the, the kid he's or no the, the okay. he's killed and the kid gets panicking he knows and they know that he was the one who did it they now know that the kid is the one who started it so he's being followed and he has to jump into the hudson to escape them at some stage and he dry he goes to another he's a good swimmer so it's, it's a nice kid story mm. and at the end he discovers that they put an atomic a dirty bomb in Times Square and they're going to explode it and he's able to block it out by because it was being done with an early cell phone one of the flip phones and he finds a way to do it and I wrote the script and I sent it to uh, to an agent who liked it a lot he says I've ABC make, was working with Universal they're making TV movies a great TV movie and uh, they were going to fly me there but it didn't work out when the agent who I found, who never met me, or spoke only on the phone, found out my age. He says, oh, I thought you were about 25, 30. I said, no, I'm a little older than that. He said, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. I told him it was a young kid. I found this young kid who wrote a story about kids. They got all excited. I said, you can't come to California and do that. And so he dropped it. It was written with Writers Guild and all that. I even went to them. They said, you don't read this. They changed the story enough yeah. that it's, it's a derivative story about a kid and some bad people. They changed it enough that there was, the bomb at the end was right there. They put it in a grate. They put it in a, under a grate. I had it inside of a lobby as a statue. But they, they, they made the bomb and they got into the grate in the sidewalk and that's where it was going to explode. And, and so that was that. Then I didn't write much. I wrote another story which I was going to make with a American. Good. He was very interested in doing it, but then he wanted to make it much more political, about an American guy who goes to Mexico, loses all his credentials, and then the only way to get back is to sneak on the border, and he gets caught, and they put him in a holding cell. I mean, it's that's, to do. Uh, that's like uh, what's it called? Uh, Born in East L.A. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I wrote it many years ago, and he was interested in doing. He could make it financing, but he wanted to make it a big political statement. I said, no, no, it's an adventure story. 
what happens to this guy, how he finally gets to convince everybody he's an American and can prove that he is. And, and he so that broke down too. So I kept writing and then I stopped writing. After a while I said, I'm not gonna be making movies anymore, I better make some money, which I did. Did you direct many features after Savage Dawn? No, my last one. So New York Nights was, which was Romano Vanderbilt. Yeah, that was that was before. Savage? Yeah. Okay. So it was New York Nights, then it was Silent Madness, then it was Savage Dawn, and that was the end of it. Okay. The, and then the, the, there was a sort of decline in the film business because of the videotape business. Yeah. And when I saw what was going on, I said. This is going to kill the film industry in some way, it's, as I know it. You know, the big machines, I had eight cams, I had moviolas, I had all uh, 21 people working for me. I said, this is no longer the future, this is now the past. I mean, a horse and carriage, I said, I got to move on. And I realized that a, a, the 440 machines, the three-quarter Sonys, two of them with a controller, would make me more money than three cams. I said, what am I doing? I can put that into a little room and just work away. So that was the decline of it. And I, I promised my wife after Savage Dawn, I won't do any more. <laughs> because the whole thing was for me to make a living out of this and a career. And But I did not want to live in California. I don't like LA, I don't like the lifestyle, I don't like the roads. To travel, to be in a car for four hours a day is not my my ambition in life. I said, no. So this is ideal for me. I work out of my house and I have a great time. I'm working in Academy Award movies. I love it. How did you get started in, uh, in filmmaking? When I was 11 years old, my uncle from New York, I lived in Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, brought me a 8mm camera. Okay. And I was a movie buff anyway. That was... The biggest thing in my life was to go to the movies. In fact, when I was 13, two years later, my mother wanted to give me a big bar mitzvah, a big 13-year-old party in a social club, the Jewish social club. Hundreds of, of the colony there to come visit and give lots of presents and lots of food and dancing and so on. And he says, when you like that, I said, I would rather go to the movies from the beginning of the movie in the morning till the end of night. If you let me go all day to the movies, she said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let you go to the movies all day. I was in heaven. <laughs> I was in heaven. I even remember two of the movies I saw. What were they? One was Captain of Castile with Tyrone Power. It was a wonderful film. And the other one was Gaslight, which I was not allowed to see because it was supposed to be a very adult film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, they knew me in the movie house. They, I told the the, the people who ran the, 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 that I was staying in the movie all day and I'd buy tickets for every one of the shows and they let me see Gaslight. And I snuck in there. I was supposed to be the adult son. He had to be 17 to be to see Gaslight. Well, here we have... Uh, and this is, I'm assuming, post-broken leg? I think he's there, is he? I think he's not in that shot anymore. Well... That was the other guy. That was the... His assistant was the one who, who turned out the one with the. With the no, hand. in the car that just oh. got run over. No, no, there he is. He's still holding. That's a cut away from another. Oh. Somebody said, "No, he gets killed in the movie. I think right after that he, 
I think he gets shot by one of the cannons of the tank. That's how they coming out of it. So I, I didn't realize that you, I guess, grew up in Colombia. Yes, I grew up not for too long. I came to the state when I was 14. Uh, okay. I went to private school here in New Jersey and then I became an engineer at Rensselaer. And then I worked as an engineer for two years. And then I said, that's not the life for me. That's not what I want to do. Sit at a bench and just wire things. So I went and I, uh, I looked for a movie job and I got one in a documentary company. They were very happy to hire me. I went to CCNY, took night school. They had their night school during the commercial days of, of agencies. All wanted to make 16 millimeter commercial, test commercials before going big. big. So CCNY opened up a school uh, up, up in Harlem. And at night, all the art directors and people in the artistic area of the, of the agencies would go. And I took the course, and the teacher was one from Jay, he was from Jay Walter Thompson. And he looked at me and he found out I knew how to do lighting because I had been doing films since I was 11. I was now in my 20s. And he said, do you know how to do lighting? And you know how to do a backlight? And apparently you understand what? I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been doing little movies. So he said, uh, if you quit your job, you can work for J. Walter Thompson as my assistant after you get your degree here. You know, it was a social arts or something like that. So I left, I took a vacation and went away for two months and I came back and I called J. Walter Thompson to talk to him and he had left. So all of a sudden I said, oh, I quit my job. I'm here. I've got an MP guide, those little yellow guides. And I started looking for movie companies and I just went from door to door and somebody hired me. He says, oh, you're an engineer and you know how to make movies, you know how to thread a moviola, can you thread an array? I said, yeah, I can do all that. He said, okay, we have windows over Riverside Drive, could you wash them, please? And so that was my first job. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy to have it. I was in a company of uh, movie making. And the, the person who was a top-notch, he was a very small company called Harvest Films, and he, his name was Al Sokolo. And his brother was the one of the head people in in 60 Minutes, and I learned a lot from him. And from then on, I went on to five years. I quit, and I started making movies. What was the what? I guess what were some of the first features that you worked on? I don't even know the names. Actually, what I did more than anything else was work with other filmmakers, and I became a crew member. Okay. I would shoot. I would edit. I would do sound. I would do. The, the, I would do gaffering. There was a lot of people in New York looking for assistants that pay you $35, $40 a day. I was very happy to do that and worked a lot. And then I think the first one was, I think Cowards was the first. That was during the Vietnam era, yeah. I think that was the very first. Oh, no, To Hex With Sex was the, you've heard of that film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, I think, the first I did. That was the first you directed? Yeah, I okay. wrote and directed it. I think there was, I think, yeah, that was the first one. That was RAF Industries paid for that. And, uh, and uh, who ran that company? A, sh- a guy who sold shoes and decided he made so much money selling shoes, he, he just wanted to be in the movie business. So he, with two friends, formed this company in 57th Street called RAF Industries. Then I did, I recut and I shot some scenes for f- Snuff. Yeah. 
That was later on, though. Yeah, that was but later R- on. Raph was... Industries is the company that, that yes. produced the bus movie. Yes. So The bus right. movie was Raph Industries. Yeah. And, and they did, I think we did another couple of little 16mm, 60-minute films, because sometimes drive-ins, they only wanted to have 60 minutes. It was a short movie. Mm-hmm. It was a mini movie. And it was always exploitation guard grabbers I did. Okay. You've heard of that film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I know yeah. of it. That was... Yeah, now, I think that was my first fully, uh, that was also Raf Industries, and I had a great cameraman. He, he, was, he was from, he was European, he was really creative. And he came Do you up, remember his name? I probably have to dig it up someplace, I don't, I'll have to go back, was that 1966, 67? I gotta go back a few years to find out what his name was. He had a great crew. He shoot he shot infomercials, the first set of infomercials that they did for and he he shot that for me. He had a K in his name. I forget his name. Hungarian. He was Hungarian, so he came from European aesthetic values of black and white lighting. Yeah, obviously we shot everything in reversal film then yeah. blew it up to thirty five. Yeah, Girl Grabbers was fun, a lot of fun. And we had a good time with that film. That I shot in seven days and made quite a bit of money for for Raph. So they went and said, okay, get, let's do another one. Then we did the bus, the bus film, which was just, I started getting the idea of single man fighting for his, you know, for. for Against mm-hmm. the mobs, that kind of thing, and this. So in a sense, this is a an outshoot of that. Yeah. Well, since you brought it up, I think people listening to this track would be uh, interested to hear it. Can you talk about how you got involved shooting the the I guess the ending for snuff, the snuff scene? Oh yeah, that was a very interesting man. I liked him a lot. He was a high personality. He owned a company called. Monarch releasing Alan Shackleton. Alan Shackleton, and he bought a film from two Chicago filmmakers, that couple. Uh, New York, uh, yes. Michael and Roberta Findlay. Yes. But Jack Bravman was the producer. Yes, of and he he bought the film. They, I think they shot a film supposedly about Manson in Argentina. Yeah. Yes. He bought it, and he looked at it and he says, "This is a piece of crap. I can't do anything with it." And, he came up with that idea because the snuff idea of films that people would be really being killed in, in this little semi-porn snuff film it was coming up in the news and they were talking about it. nobody ever saw one, but they said that it was maybe a myth, maybe there was somebody killed in a film. I never saw one. And uh, we wrote scenes of, of the snuff scene in it. And, and Alan Shackleton was very clever he cast it. He found a couple he knew. He says the couple lived together, and she's an actor, and so is he, and they're going to be in it. They love it. And so I hired um, the Night of the Living Dead special effects guy, brought him to New York. He was legend because in the Night of the Living Dead it was such a legend, legendary mm-hmm. film. And we called him and said, Do you want to come to New York? to design this film, the scenes, and we shot it in a studio in Midtown, and he built this funky bed, 
and where the girl was inside in a curve. This is one of the magician's trick. Yeah. And he went to Ninth Avenue and Forty Second Street to all the meat markets and bought intestines of pigs and hearts, mm -hmm. and he brought buckets of. Guts, guts, and blood that he also got. For you. you could buy blood to make pudding out of it, and he bought it in. And we, I used mostly my crew to be the crew of the film, and we had a cameraman who shot Bob Megan who shot it. Okay, and we shot it, and then I cut it. I cut it into the film, and then Alan Shackleton opened it in Times Square. He took that couple, who were his friends. He sent them out to the Bahamas. They yeah. left no notice behind. And fortunately, because as the film came out and it was a furor in, in Times Square, a detective came to my office and they said, where are the actors who were in the film? They disappeared. Do you know where they are? I think they, they really got killed. I said, no, no, no. And what I had is a Polaroid that we took during lunchtime because she couldn't come out of the bed. We ordered pizza. She had to sit up. And yeah. then she was with the guts out eating pizza. And the detective said, that's amazing. He says, how do you get into this job? <laughs> I, was, I was stunned. He says, I, I, I want to work in this industry that you're in. So that was that. that was, but that's Alan. And Alan hired some feminists to go and march in front. Yeah. He did. He was a genius in marketing. Yeah, then he died of a heart attack. And in fact, he, I was supposed to run with him that day in Central Park. Wow. So he called me up. He said, do you want to come and run? I said, I can't. I have another. That was on a Sunday. He came to New York. He already moved to L.A. And he came to New York, called me to run with him. Because I started him running. I said, you're an A-type personality. I could talk to him like that. He says, you're so calm all the time. I said, I am a calm person. I'm a B-type. You're an A-type. And the best thing for an A is to run. And he decided to run. He became a runner. And he came running out, and uh, a, I had told this to a friend of mine who was a writer for the Daily News for the running column called Eddie Coyle. I told Eddie Coyle that, you know, I got this guy to start running. I said, it's a good thing for him. He needs it, exercise and get it out of his head. And he was running right behind him when he died. He called me from a payphone after Alan collapsed in, the, in Central Park and said, your friend, who you told me about, is here, and I think he's dead. I can't believe it. That's and you know, the, 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 did I tell you the story of, uh, of the couple who did snuff? What happened to him? He came to my office. Yeah, Michael Finley. He, he, Michael, I told you the story, right? He I, I mean, I know the story, but definitely tell it for the well, he came to he came to see his trailer. He was doing a Technicolor. He said, what well, can I look at it? And the screening room was busy, so he came up to August Holmes, so two floors up, and ran it on the cam. And he was asking me some questions about some sound, and I took him to sound shop, which was uh, down the hall, and he recorded something he wanted to add to the track, and then we were going to have it mixed. And then he said, well, I'm going to, back to Chicago, I'm going to go to Pan, the Pan Am building, which was then over the Grand Central one, over Grand Central, the Met, the Met building, with the helipad. And, uh, he said, we'll take a helicopter over there, and he left. And I worked late that night, and somebody from Technicolor called me up. He said, Simon, Michael Fendi just went and had his head chopped off by the helicopter. I, I couldn't believe it. I said, I'm, I, it's one of those stories where, you know, you touch some people, and you, 
you're safe. You feel so lucky that you're, you know, that things with Alan Shackleton didn't work out well. But, so that was the story of that. I think they both died. Well, she Michael, died later, right? Much later. Roberta? Oh no, she's still alive. Oh no, she's still alive. Yeah, she she runs Sear Sound. Oh yes, yes, she that's became right. partners with Walter yes. Sear. Yes, that's right. I remember. That. And there's yes, a, yes, yes. a random uh, Terry Levine connection there because another film that Terry bought and shot their not shot but added new scenes for an Italian film called Zombie Holocaust, which he turned into Doctor Butcher MD. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Walter Sear wrote the music for it. Oh really? Oh my God! <laughs> Small world, but. He was an interesting guy. Yeah, he is an interesting Terry. I, I assume he's still alive. He's in yes. New Jersey. Yeah, in, so I see his lives in Fort Lee, right across the bridge. Yes, yes. This is another find from Bill Milling. This, uh, this particular. Uh, this is town. the mine again, right? No, this is not the mine. This is another building that was abandoned. It's a. It used to be, I think, a coal uh, or oil facility. Oil rig? Yeah, it, it was on the, in the desert and. Eventually, whatever they were doing there ran out, and we shot that. Then we dropped a helicopter. Uh, yeah, we, we dropped a, a motorcycle. And then we dropped a real motorcycle, but it was a bit of a wreck. Yeah, I saw yeah. That, that shot, yeah. and you see it just yeah. topple off the yeah, side. Yeah, it was, there, it's a whole tank scene. And the tanks, and they, they, it was abandoned. Bill came back, I remember, it was a Monday morning. He came back, it was a Sunday drive. He says, What fun, this is great abandoned place and they said sure you can shoot anything you want there you can't set it on fire it's all steel there's nothing to do so, yes. were people generally uh, amenable to you know someone coming along and saying we want to shoot a film in your yes yes this is what Bill's great gift was the gift of gab he was wonderful and he always embellished the film he yeah. wanted to throw the names around. He always made it look and sound exciting. So, yes, it, he was certainly a, a great asset to this. Everyone yeah. heard the, the big Hollywood actors. Yeah, that's thought, exactly. You know, yeah. My, my dump is going to be in the movies. Yeah. And, and, and people, they, they like that. They, they find that very interesting. Netflix just came here. They wanted to use our interior for a film. But I've been, a, I told the, the, the location casting person and said, I'm sorry, I've been in the movie business. I do not lend my house to it. I don't care how well they treat it. Uh, it's so displacing. But we, don't, we didn't use too many actual real sets. We used, we used you know, places that were abandoned, empty mines, places that in, in towns that would like to have a little razzmatazz around. So why not? So it's enjoyable. And were all of these locations in the same general area? Yeah, they were within 90 miles. I mean, sometimes we had to move further up and get another motel. You know, we would go like 50, 60 miles out of the way. And, but in a, So this is the guy who took over Bill uh, okay. Forsyth. Uh, and you can see how much he's playing the role. Yes try to and that person being dragged is Sully Marks who is our stunt he's also the bad guy in Sound and Madness how many stunt uh, how many stunt people were there he was there with two assistants who were learning the business 
Okay. He basically designed them all and did them all. So th the, the close-ups were really of the actor in a crane, he's being held, but the long shot when he's being taken up, and that's Holly. We would not allow any actor to do that because something terrible could happen. And he came from New York, I assume. Solly? Yeah. No, California. Oh, okay. Right? He, he went to California. And, uh, I met him there. I was introduced to him by one of the actors. He says, I have this wonderful guy. He's trying to... But he was already... Silent Madness was maybe fourth. Yes, he was. And, but So he came. I hired him for Silent Madness because we needed somebody to do special effects of Silent Madness. And then what happened was that uh, we couldn't find it heavy to do the wrong because the guy is deaf mute I said Sally why don't you do the wrong then I, you can do all the stunts you can do everything do stunts for everybody else and and be the madman I said okay he do it he was South African he is South African he's still alive well I think we've uh, reached the end of the film any any last uh, comments no, or thoughts I, I didn't get to look at it too much at the moment but the fifth really chapter, that's the uh, the name of the, yes, yes, the motorcycle. Yes, that's the fifth chapter, yes. I remember now. I didn't get the name of the comedian. He's there. He's we're already in the crew. I think yeah, we're already we're in the crew. All those names I remember. It was a good experience, but I did not want to do it again. Making low-budget films can be very thankless unless you hit the lotto as they say in the business. Well, on that uplifting note, I think we can cut. Very good. <laughs>